You're listening to Parenting Our Future with certified parent coach, Robin McMahon, author of The Yelling Cure and founder of Parenting for Connection. My podcast is all about providing you with the tools and solutions you need in your parenting so you can create the family you always wanted. here. Welcome to another episode of Parenting Our Future. I am here with two really amazing women who I so respect and I've just been talking to them both and I love everything that they stand for and everything that they're talking about. I am so, so honored to introduce you to Fern Johnson and Marlene Fine, who are the authors of a book called Let's Talk Race, A Guide for White People. So I want to welcome you both. And I want to tell uh, the audience just a little bit about these beautiful women. They, um, they, are the, they are the moms to two adult Black men that they adopted. And we're going to hear all about their adoption story. And both of them have had careers as, pro- as professors where they were studying through their research and through their work at race and communication. And, uh, and they have a really unique, a really unique story. And I think it's really important that we talk about it and that we learn from them because they have a lot to share. So welcome both Fern and Marlene. I'm so happy to have you. Great. Thank you. We're happy to be here. We're so happy to be here. And, you know, you have such a fascinating podcast. Oh, thank you. Great for you. And we're happy to be part of it. Well, I, I am so happy. Thank you. Um, so, so you have been in this, in this world of studying race, studying communication. And, uh, and so here you are looking to have a family. And so what, you know, and there's so much that we're going to talk about, and I'm going to sort of start there if that's okay. So can you sort of tell me the story of how you came to be moms to two black boys. Absolutely. Um, So we had talked a little bit about having a family um, and weren't sure about whether we could do this. And by this point, um, I was, I think, 39 was uh, 42. And um, we started to talk about it, but we weren't sure. And we were on vacation in Italy on the Adriatic Sea in a Mm -hmm. small town that was filled, it was August, so it was vacation time for Italians. And it was filled with Italians who had come from little towns in Italy. And it was whole neighborhoods and families. And every day you'd go to the beach and you would um, rent a chair and you'd be in the same chair every day. So we'd go to the beach and we'd see these families lined up along the shore with all these children. And the children would have a wonderful time. They'd be running around and doing things. Every adult took care of every child. There wasn't a sense of the ownership of a a single adult of a child. And we began to talk about a kind of different vision of what it would be like to have children, that we wouldn't be alone in this. Um, We lived and worked in a place that we did not have access to family. And so we knew that we couldn't call up our moms and say, gee, we need babysitter today. Um, That wasn't gonna happen for us. So thinking about having a community really helped us focus. So we decided when we got back, we would start to pursue adoption. And um, we uh, went with a a private agency 
um, as uh, two lesbians, uh, public agencies really weren't available to us. So we had a um, private agency that we worked with and um, we were not out as a couple, but it was kind of understood that we were. And um, initially we started looking at international adoption. The Black Social Workers of America were on record publicly then as saying that the adoption of black children by white parents was a form of genocide uh, because they believed that white parents Cult could not, cultural, cultural, cultural genocide. Cultural genocide, genocide. yes. Not, you could not instill a sense of black culture, black history, um, mm. and a strong racial identity for your child as a white person. And so as academics, we were very respectful of that position and we decided mm. we would not adopt a black child. Um, but we were open to a child of different race, different ethnicity from overseas. So we started there and began to encounter obstacles. In the Philippines, you had to be Catholic. Um, in other countries, you had to be married. In other countries, you had to be married for X number of years um, and, and so on. Uh, in the meantime, as we did the process in Massachusetts, we had to go through a series of counseling sessions and um, Fern went to a counseling session one night and so changed. Part, part two. So <laughs> I go to the counseling session, very clearly resolved you know, that we are not going to adopt a black child in this yes. black social workers statement. And you know, we, we understood that statement. And we respected it, obviously. Yeah, we respected it. Uh, so the social worker who's in charge of this session, it's a group session, is, is giving pretty much an overview on the different kinds of programs they have. And you can do international here or there, but you know, there's a variety of people there. She talks about then their domestic program. It was an international agency primarily, but they had a domestic program. They were getting increasingly into that. And as she talked about that, she then began to talk about uh, adopt white people adopting black children, you know, so it's like, oh, <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, we're, we're settled on that. Then she comes out with all of this data about right. the foster care system and the children waiting in foster care, who they are, what their race, ethnicity is. And if I remember correctly, at the time, the ratio of black children to white children who were in the foster care system, whatever age they were, was yeah. eight to one. So eight black children for every one white child. Oh, and then with one. eight to one, and then within the black children's group grouping, yes, the ratio was the same for boys and girls. Eight boys, eight black boys to every one black girl. Whoa. There was some reason she talked about for why that existed, which is a, a kind of another another point. But it, it turned my head around. My thinking was like, okay, how can how can I step back and say, I'm going to reject adopting a child who's likely, and we she told us this too, what the probability of staying in foster care and not getting adopted by anybody would be. I mean, they were they were they were not pushing this, but they wanted people to think about it. So you know, I talked to Marlene, and we said we need to rethink this whole thing. And it was very hard 
and we talked, I think, to every black person we knew uh, to just get some viewpoints about this. Um, we were not discouraged, you know, not that everybody said all positive things, but we definitely were encouraged by a number of friends and, you know, got some sobering comments about what it would mean, which was you know, realistic. So when we were asked a question about whether this issue of race wasn't, was something we were concerned about, our answer changed. And now the answer was, no, we're open to any race, any ethnicity, gender, doesn't matter. Right. The so you went from, can I, can I just say you went from yeah. respecting what the Black Social Workers of America said, which was white people don't adopt a Black child because you will kill the Black culture, right? Yes. Essentially, yeah. to yes. saying, yeah, but the foster system is full of children eight to one of them, eight kids to one are black. And then within that grouping itself, eight to one are boys. And you're saying, well, but how can I ignore that? This yeah, is exactly. exactly what we need exactly. to do, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, cultural, keeping culture uh, in mind, but at the same time, if they have a horrible childhood, that culture is gone anyway. Right? They, they've lost they never, that culture anyway, right? They yeah. never have family. And you know, there were very good reasons why yes. there were difficulties yes. with, and there were a lot of black people who were adopting yes. black children. Yes, but, yes. You know, there was, there was a numbers issue and then a lot of obstacles for, for how structures were set up in states about who can adopt and how many square feet of living space, you know, all these things. <laughs> Yeah. No, seriously. Seriously, there's, is, yeah. there's no question that there is systemic racism built into the adoption system in the United States. And so there are lots of reasons why Blacks in the U.S., even though they want to adopt, don't get the opportunity to adopt. Um, and Blacks actually adopt in percentages that are equivalent to adoption percentages for whites. Um, so Black families are very concerned about black yeah, children, yeah. Um, but uh, the issue is there simply aren't enough families uh, to adopt all of the children who are in foster care. Oh, okay, so then you have, fast forward to you adopting two boys, right? And how old were they? Two when boys. You them? Um, our uh, oldest, Will, was four weeks, and oh. our younger son, Julius, was four months. Oh. That's awesome. That's yeah. so great. That's so great. And, and um, I, I, I love it. I love that you have these two boys and they're now adults. They're in their thirties. Um, and so, so I'm curious um, and, and I'm going to just say this now because I, I'm not an expert in the area of race or communication. And so there are things that I may get wrong as I ask you questions. So, um, you know, you, we, we talked about this just before we recorded that I feel um, somewhat ignorant and uh, I'm gonna do my best to make sure that I 
say things the right way. And, uh, and so I hope that I, I hope that I do that. And please correct me if I, if I say something wrong. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> and I think this is the whole reason why you have the book that you have, because you really want to normalize and, um, and educate people like me with a willing heart who may just not know what I don't know. Right. Exactly, exactly. Our purpose in writing the book is to really get whites to engage in the conversation, to have deep conversations about race, and to not feel embarrassed, to not feel afraid, to not worry about political correctness, but to say, <laughs> we need to educate ourselves and to enter into conversations with that education, with the background that allows us to engage in, in yeah, and, conversation. And to use these conversations to understand where our racial ideas come from. And I think, you know, in relationship to what we're talking about with you today, how this impacts the development of children, you know, how they feel about their identity in the world, the opportunities, the prospects that they have. These are all things that are related at the deep core of where all of these attitudes and beliefs in our society come from. Mm -hmm. And you know we need to unearth these in a way that's not always easy, you know, in conversation. Um, but we got to get we got to get to the point of not being overly cautious. You know, um, we need you know we can read a lot and we can learn a lot that way, but we have got to talk to people. Yeah, you know, white people, black people you know, people of Asian heritages. I mean, we have got to talk about race. Yeah, we do. We do. So, so I want, I want, so let's talk about race then. Let's talk about it because, you know, one of the things that was, um, that I think that um, was vital to your experience too is, is in your careers as professors, as academics, you did a lot of studying in race and communication. And so how does language play a part in racism or communicating race? How does that work? Oh, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll try a couple, couple of different ways of answering that. First okay. of all, there is the language we use on an everyday basis. You know, we learn to, to, to use language in the environment with the people that we live with. Families are very central to that because of course, that's where the child is. So you're learning to speak the language in the context of other people. So, you know, most people know about, oh, there's accent, you know, you come from this part of the country of this accent. Yeah. You know, maybe if you're from Canada, you might say uh, the word A-B-O-U-T differently, but not all Canadians, you know. <laughs> You might I don't think I say about in a very uh, non-Canadian way, but there are those that say about. Yes, yeah, there's a boot, and you know, there's in, in the U.S. You know, there's you know, pak, yaka, nahav, and yad. You know, so we know about regional dialects and what have you. Right. But then there's there are also ethnic and racial varieties of speaking. Right. So one of the things about language that has been very important in terms of race is that there, there is a, a variety, a group of varieties that are called African-American English. And okay. you know, it's what, you know, African-Americans in different ways, different regions of the country, you know, have spoken in their communities for years. And it's a little different. Well, 
Um, Standard English pronounced this many decades ago as inferior language, as fractured, as grammatically incorrect, as inappropriate for educated people. And that had a deep impact on young children in school who were always corrected if they spoke any version of African-American English. Now this started to change, um, you know, in, I don't know, the 1960s, 1970s, a little bit in terms of research. But it's still there, Robin, in terms of the kind of denigration of language that, in quote, sounds black. And what's important to recognize is that linguistic researchers discovered that, in fact, African-American English, African-American vernacular is a structured language. It has a linguistic system. Uh, there right. are rules that you follow. Um, and so to infer that it is deficient because it is different from standard English right, right. is wrong. And it's also very hurtful, very dangerous for children to experience that. Right. And so is it, is it like saying there is an African-American dialect? Like, is that, is that what that is? Well, it, yeah, it, it is, a lot of this is part of dialect study. Uh, it, it, it's a little broader than that because there are also cultural norms. Uh, there's a very famous uh, black linguist, her, her name is Geneva Smitherman. And she talks, she was probably the first person at the University of Michigan uh, who talked about in the United States, the carrying forward of the importance of the word and that, you know, speaking is so important in honoring your, 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 your words, you know, that what you say uh, is uh, a cherished um, part of your connection to other people. Your word is your bond, which is actually a phrase that Michelle Obama has used a number of times in, mm. in, in speaking to talk about the importance between trust and connection between people. So there are you know, larger elements in addition to you know, the dialect elements about yeah. what, what language and communication means to right. people. I keep thinking back to, I think it's in the 90s where there was a push to, uh, in a community that I don't, I don't remember, uh, but it was Ebonics. Oh, oh yes. yeah. Oakland, right? Oakland, California. Yeah. yeah, and Geneva Smitherman was um, actually an expert who was brought in to uh, testify uh, and, to, and to talk about it. And so, you know, the idea is not that African-American vernacular or, or other dialects are um, things that you would say to a, a child, um, this is okay for you to use throughout your education and in the professional world. But it is important to recognize the integrity of it, you know, as a language form that has various rules and that as you begin to teach standard English to a student, um, that you not deny mm. the importance and the viability of the language that they're using. Or there are some forms of African-American dialect that we see expressed by very educated professional individuals uh, that they carry through. Um, and it's really important for white people to recognize that 
and to not say, oh, gee, there's something wrong with yeah. it. Oh, they, know, missed a, it they missed a less, lesson about how to say X, you know? They, right. Not, you know right. Oh, this person just said X instead of yeah. that. Right. X and ask. Yeah. You hear that from, you know, highly educated Black experts in a variety of areas. They might be giving a talk and you're listening to them and, you know, they sound pretty much like Marlene or me or you. And, you know, then ask, you know, I, I asked the, my yeah. colleague and, you know, you can almost like know that someone's going to say, oh, oh, goodness, you know, what happened there? Well, <laughs> it's yeah. there. It's important. It is an identifying mark of who you are so you, mm -hmm. you 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 communicate your identity by how you speak right. as well as you know people judging your identity and by it, how it's you speak. not an incorrect form of ASK it is in fact a form that is used within the dialect and it has a history you know that you can trace back and so it becomes important to recognize it as a cultural marker um, right. and to not then assume, oh, that's a person who, you know, doesn't know how to speak. Right. Um, but all too often we do that. And of course, the irony is that, you know, there's so many um, whites in the U.S. who have their own, um, you know, incorrect forms. <laughs> yeah, incorrect, no uh, but, there's, but we're all so quick to yeah. make judgments about other people. Right now. It is so true. And the more you talk about this, the more, the more my head is like wanting to explode because it's a lot of information. It sounds really complicated. And then I, then I look at the two of you raising two black boys. So how did you navigate that? How did like, how did you preserve and protect the culture while raising them, you know, while being able to just relax into raising them as two white women? Well, we, could, we can answer that in a couple of ways, but just a quick, quick first answer, which relates to what we've just been talking about. So yeah. given where our sons grew up, the schools they went to, their family, what have you, uh, they're not speakers of Black English vernacular. Doesn't mean that they, they don't. Yeah. No, they're not. Doesn't mean that they don't understand it. Right. But that said, they are often told and have, have been told over the years that, you know, people are surprised because you don't sound black <laughs> as though every black person is supposed to sound the same way. I, am, I had a very interesting experience when um, our older son, Will, was still an infant. So he's about six weeks old. He'd been with us for about two weeks and we were invited to a party. It was an academic party. It was on a college campus. And so we brought William with us and um, I'm holding William and I became engaged in a conversation with a um, black man who was French. He was from France and he was a producer for National Public Radio. So we're having this conversation and he's asking about Will and I'm like filled with angst, you know, so I'm pouring my heart out that I don't know how I am going to provide a culture for my child that will be representative of African-American life in the United States. And I'm going on and on about this. And he just looked at me at some point and he said, you Americans are so strange. Why do you assume that all African-Americans have the same experiences? You know, black people around the world, black people throughout the United States have very different experiences. So don't assume that there is one 
cultural experience that you have to give your child. You know, you will create something in your family that is representative of your family. Um, Which uh, will include, yes, that you have black people and you have white people in your family. In your family. So I remember right. the first, one of the first things, Robin, that Marlene and I were aware of, this is just a, not about the kids per se, we looked around our house. Right. Hanging on the walls. Well, <laughs> we better change that now. Not that we're going to throw away, you know, <laughs> what we have, but we need to now start to be more conscious of making our home look like a place where black people and white people live here. Right. Our children needed to see themselves reflected. Yes. Whether it was the art on the walls and the figurines that we had, but they needed to see themselves. Um, I mean, we already had, again, because we were academics who studied race, uh, we had large collections of books by black authors and about issues of race. Uh, we both love jazz, so we had a large collection of, of jazz uh, recordings, um, mostly by um, black jazz artists. Um, but there really wasn't a whole lot else that really reflected it. Uh, so we began to, to do different things. So for example, um, uh, together, um, I'm Jewish and uh, Fern is um, Lutheran, sort of. Well, I was raised Lutheran. <laughs> um, and uh, we love to uh, celebrate Christmas um, because well, I, did, I, I didn't... I introduced this to my... Right, so. I didn't grow up with it. And so right. we, we always had a Christmas tree and Fern had very early in our relationship created a beautiful gold star that went, at, a Jewish star that went at the top right. of our Christmas tree. So our first Christmas with Will, a friend gave us the black angel that had always adorned uh, her family Christmas tree. Mm. And so that became the top of the Christmas tree and the star moved down, it stayed, uh, but the, the black angel went up. And then we realized we had no ornaments of color. I mean, right. you know, it, white Santa Clauses and white angels. Yeah, so and, you start to realize yeah. that we had never, you look around at various things and the images are white. So you know, every Christmas tree ornament that had like a person image on it. Yes, yeah, I get what you're saying, yeah. Right, so we thought, okay, we have to, we have to get some other things for this tree. And actually the first time that we were able to buy some ornaments, we were at a conference in Chicago and we, you know, little, little escape from the conference and we were chop, <laughs> shopping. Yeah. <laughs> We're in Marshall Fields. Well, of course, Chicago has a, a substantial black population and has for a very long time. And a substantial black middle class population. Yeah. So, you know, we're wandering around and we kind of wind up in wherever. And it's right before, it's in November. So there's Christmas displays. And we spot this tree. And there are all these ornaments on it that are black, like, you know, black angels. And so we quickly, <laughs> you know, bought a couple yeah. and, you know, over the years, you know, found out different ways to, to add to that. So, yeah. so, so little, little things like that. Little things like that. And then, you know, as the boys got older, um, we did, uh, you know, we'd encourage them, for example, uh, in grade school, one of the boys had to do a project on someone famous. And so um, he selected Jackie Robinson. And did a project and began, you know, to learn about Jackie Robinson and breaking the color line in uh, baseball. 
Um, we learned quite a bit about Jackie Robinson too. That right, we had no idea. No, right. Um, when um, our sons did the ubiquitous family tree project, oh yeah, do they, they do that in Canada? In Canada, you know, it's yeah. like oh, and you know, this is a, a really difficult project for adopted children to do yes. because it makes assumptions about your knowledge of your birth family. Um, or the assumption that your um, only family is your adopted family. So um, we used it as an opportunity to get our sons to learn more about the history of slavery and about, um, mm. since they didn't know anything about their birth families, things they might learn about what their ancestry might look like. Um, mm. And so they turned their project into not just looking at their adopted family tree, but also what might have been their ancestry tree um, wow. through wow. slaves. They learned a tremendous amount and we learned a tremendous yes, amount yeah. so, uh, through that. And we also, you know, were in a, a group of families from the time they were little, uh, all, all the way forward of white parents who had adopted uh, black, brown children. And it was small enough so that the children knew each other and we got together, you know, like four times a year. It was kind mm -hmm. of fall, 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 winter, spring, <laughs> summer. We would have an event. We didn't all live in exactly the same place, and the, the old yeah. thing got more complicated. But th they always knew that there were some other families that looked like theirs. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that we did every year was, was have a Kwanzaa celebration. So the families mm -hmm. would get together with the kids and we would do Kwanzaa. And so, you know, there are ways that you, you build the culture in. Uh, mm -hmm. We decided to raise our children uh, in the Jewish faith. And so when um, they were each bar mitzvahed, uh, mm -hmm. we luckily belonged to uh, a reform congregation with a rabbi who was really open to nice. our bringing in aspects of African-American culture to the bar mitzvah. And so we had African-American spirituals that were sung, uh, did some research and discovered that there were some shared um, uh, spirituals between uh, Jews and African-Americans. And so um, we were able to include those. There are um, Ethiopian Jews. There are many Ethiopian Jews. Really? Ethiopian Jews? Uh, yeah. Yes. Arlene's mother uh, bought our son's uh, Ethiopian yarmulkes. Gorgeous yarmulkes. Uh, with, which they wore for their bar mitzvahs. Um, uh, we were uh, able to have friends read poetry by black poets as part of the bar mitzvahs. And so, you know, there, there are ways that you create um, a shared family culture that also represents your child's racial and ethnic culture. Right, right. I have a beautiful friend who has adopted a boy from Ethiopia. And ah, okay. yes, and so they are very, you know, they've gone back um, and he's, you know, there's more than one type of child who is adopted. There's, you know, true orphans and then there's economic orphans. This boy, oh, yeah. more yes. of an economic orphan. So his dad is still alive, right? Uh -huh. uh, so he was able to go back and see them. But, um, you know, they, they're really focused on, you know, doing, um, you know, language lessons and dance yeah. lessons, you know, different yeah. things just to bring the culture in, right? They, yeah. have, they have a whole wall full of Ethiopian 
photographs that they've taken when they were there. And so I, I see that now. And I, and I, I just think I just, my friend is so beautiful that she's so, I mean, they both are the, the the two of them, the mom and dad are, are really beautiful, but it just like, it gives, makes me have a burst of love even more for them, knowing the dedication they have for this child. And for you too, this is so beautiful for you to intentionally do that for your, for your boys is, is huge to make them feel, you know, not only welcome for who they are, but, and, and welcome uh, and educated for where they've come from. Right. So that's, that's beautiful and so interesting about those angels and those Christmas ornaments. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I also, you know, broadened us and enriched us um, yeah. in ways that it, it's just difficult to explain the magnitude of you know, how this whole long experience changed us and made us see the world so differently yeah. and value things that we might never have even encountered before. Um, so, so, you know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a reciprocal thing. Yeah. So what did you learn? What are, what, you know, when you just talk about, you know, things for you to value, like what, what was that? What are some of the biggest lessons that, and the, and the, the most surprising things that you've learned? Uh, well, um, start with that one. so, so I, I, can, I can start a little bit with that because um, I, I think some of the surprising things and the biggest things that we learn shift us away from the kind of celebration that we've just been talking about to really learning about racism um, yeah. in ways that were really surprising to us. So here we are, we're, you know, we're academics. Uh, we're not that young anymore. Um, we've been teaching race in our classes for a long time. We think we know a tremendous amount about it. And yeah. then we adopt two black boys and life really begins to change. A lot, a yeah. lot, a lot. Yeah. And, yeah. and lots, of, lots, lots of experiences. I'll, I'll start by talking about one, one big thing that we learned about that people now talk about all the time and has really become a kind of flashpoint, I think, in black-white conversations. Um, we learned about white privilege very early in our experience. Um, we knew about it academically. We, we taught, taught about it. it. We taught it. We, we taught both about taught it. it. Yeah, we both, we both gave our students readings and, and we talked about it. And so, you know, we were sure we understood what white privilege was. Um, and we learned very quickly we didn't. Um, so just a, a couple of quick examples. Uh, we'd be out walking um, uh, with uh, William initially. And here we are, two white woman, women. We have a black child. People would come up to us and say, you are such wonderful people. You have adopted this child. You're such good, wonderful people. And we'd look at each oh, other. He's so lucky. He's so lucky. He's so lucky. Oh, yikes. <laughs> so, you know, we'd look at each other. And Which say, is first beautiful, of all, but, but, but they don't know us. How do they know we're good people? We <laughs> might be horrible people. And if, if it were reversed, if it were reversed, if it were a black woman or two black women walking a white baby, they'd be the nannies. Right. right. Nobody be coming up and saying what wonderful people you are, how lucky your child is. Then um, fairly early on when Will was about a year old, um, I went 
to get his social security card. So I had, you know, applied for it and I had to go to the social security office and I was on sabbatical at the time. So um, I, you know, I wasn't dressed up in work clothes. I was in jeans. I go into the office and it is, you know, the kind of full service government office. And um, I take my number and I go sit and I'm sitting with my black child and um, I get called up to the desk and um, this white woman looks up, looks at me and looks at, at William and says, oh, you're here for your welfare check? I'm a tenured college professor, <laughs> you know? Whoa, whoa. And, no, I'm not here for my welfare check. I'm here to pick up my son's social security card. But I all of a sudden understood yeah. that the privilege that I had as a white person and that, you know, having a black child I no longer had, but my son didn't have privilege. You know that that was gone. When and when they when they were little, our privilege as white people could cover them in many in many situations. I can imagine, yeah, mm -hmm. where we were. Of course, as they got older, that was not the case anymore because you spend oh, less and less time with your kids. You know, they have a life that's increasingly not part of your life, even if right. you want it to be. Um, so that, that, that ends, which is, it, I mean, it doesn't end completely, but it really changes, the shift changes. Right, I can Which is why going back to the issues about creating a strong racial identity when children are very young mm -hmm. is really important because whatever that strength is or isn't, is the resource to be drawn on when a white person's privilege no longer is protecting them. I mean, so it's was that a, was that a, Right, was that a rude awakening for the boys? Well, I, well, a rude awakening for the boys, it was a rude awakening for us as um, they got older. You know, when they were young, people would say they were cute. Right. And, you know, how lovely they were and, and how wonderful it was for us to have this family. But as they got older and were on their own, um, all of a sudden they are young black men who are mm -hmm. seen as dangerous or suspicious. And so, you know, I think at times it was difficult for them. Um, we wouldn't let them, for example, take the train into Boston with their white friends when they were just very, you know, young teenagers because we thought that was too dangerous for them. Uh, we discovered one day in conversation with the black parents of um, our younger sons, uh, one of his classmates, um, they had an older son who was just about the right age to get a driver's license. And so we were chatting with them one day and said, you know, um, is he getting his license soon? And um, the two parents looked at us and said, no, he is not ready. And we said, what do you mean? And they said, we've been teaching him about how to respond if he's pulled over by the police. And we don't think he knows how. And we're not letting him get a license until he does. We didn't know until that moment that we had to have a conversation with our sons right. before they started driving. Right. We then had to have that conversation. Yeah. You know, when I, in a previous podcast episode that I did um, on white privilege with Jen Lumenland, uh, that's what we talked about that you have, you know, that, that, that 
the white privilege we have is never having to have that conversation. Whereas that's a normal conversation to have in a black family. And even my friend that I keep talking about, and I mentioned it in that podcast episode as well, that, you know, I remember her telling me that she had to have a conversation with her son to say, you know what, at some point you can't wear your hoodie up over your head because that will look suspicious to other people. And I thought, no. Yes. I mean, how ignorant, right? I mean, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And, uh, and, and, and what Jen was, was, was saying is the most, the scariest thing for, and, and I mean, I don't want to make a huge broad statement, but for white people is an out of control black male. Sure. Even if it's a child, right? Even if it's a young child, right? Yes, yes. Well, the research in schools, um, I mean, black children and especially black boys get suspended at much higher rates than white boys. Um, but if you're actually looking at their behaviors, they're not different. Um, yeah. But the black child is deemed as out of control and dangerous. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Okay. So then what do we do, right? This is why you're, why you have your book. So what do we do? How do we change the way we talk to our kids? I've got two teenage boys, 15 and 13. And, yeah, they're beautiful boys. Dynamic. <laughs> yes, yes. And there's a lot going on here in my house. <laughs> we remember those. <laughs> on a day-to-day basis, yeah. Um, and, you know, I want to raise good men. Like, every parent wants to raise great people. So right. what do we do? How, what, tell, you know, yeah, what, what, what do we need to make sure we're doing? Because this is what your book is all about. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for, um, you know, helping people like me. Well, we need to talk about race in our families. And that doesn't matter what race you are. I mean, okay. you know, white parents of white children need to talk about race in their family situation. And not just when there's a racial crisis or another black you know, person has been killed by the police. Um, it needs to be a conversation that, that's norm, normalized. You know, this is our country. This, our country has many different kinds of people. You know, we have black people, we have you know, Latinx people, we have people of many Asian backgrounds, and increasingly, our country is more of this mix. And we need to talk about it. We need to recognize it. We need to stop, you know, get the words out of our vocabulary about that person is different. I mean, okay. we, are, we are all different from one another, but that, that's the reality. It's not that there's just some people who are different. So, you know, I, so I think that's part of it, so that kids get used to hearing their parents, even if their parents aren't talking to them, they're just talking to each other, that race is a, a variable thing, that race and ethnicity multifaceted, and all, all people are not the same, they don't look the same, they don't do the same things, and that's important, I think. And it's can okay I, to talk project? about race. You yeah, know, so- can I say something? So here's the thing, though, as uh, look, for me, as, a, as, as what I would consider a conscientious person raising my boys when they're little, and we have those little people dolls, some of them are brown, some are white, or whatever color, they're yellow, whatever color they are, not even 
And so my answer to the race question was to not even mention it, to not even- Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so that's not what you want to do. You want to like, so, so can you walk us through how you would really, you know, is this the brown child? Like, how do you, how do you do that? Like in, in wow. a, do you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, let me just say one thing before yes. the age issue, because I do understand exactly what you're talking about. And I right. think that sometimes that is the right approach. But if you don't talk about race, don't think that your child is not going to encounter it out there in yeah. whatever situations they're in. They're going to encounter it in school, certainly, regardless of what their race or ethnicity is. I mean, we were surprised <laughs> to learn when our kids were in college and talking, you know, with friends who had come to our house, their, their friends who were at our house, that some things that happened in high school, now this is a very progressive community with a very positive, you know, set of social values. They learned about things that happened in high school that they never told us about. And because kids don't always tell you about things, but if they think everything's just fine and there are no differences, you know, it's a very, it's a very delicate balance, but then, what happens when they go out of the family situation and now they're faced with something? And you haven't really prepared them, is what you're right. saying. Yeah, right. Yeah. Whether right. they're whether they're white or or black or Chinese American or Puerto Rican, whatever, you know. It, right, right. So I, I can say some things about ways to talk to your children at different stages, you know, as they're growing, but I also think it's really important for adult white people to recognize that we have to take some responsibility for our own learning um, so that we in fact are prepared as we teach our children and yeah. that we're ready to talk about race. Um, so, you know, so I, I'll put that aside for the moment, but I, I do think that, that that's a really important component of this. But in thinking about kids, you know, little kids just see color. You know, so like the little toys, that's what they see. They see some people who are brown and some people who are white. Or as one of our sons once said to me as we were washing our hands and, um, you know, he had heard us talk about black and white people. And um, he looked at our two hands and he said, well, mom, you're pink. You're not white. And I'm brown. I'm not black. Uh, and he's, you know, he was correct in saying this. Um, and one day when I uh, was picking up uh, William from uh, daycare, there was a little black girl. Uh, he, he's the older of our sons and I'm walking out and um, she looked up and she said, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Will's mom. And she said, you can't be. And I said, why not? And she said, you're white, he's black. And I thought for a minute, what, what do I say here? And I just yeah. looked at her. Oh, he's adopted. And she said, oh, okay. Because at that age, there was nothing malicious about what she was thinking. It's just color. You know, you're different colors. And so to at least acknowledge that with young kids and that it's okay for them to say something about it. You know, yeah. not to say, shush, don't say that. You know, don't, right. don't, don't say, oh, that's a black person. Shh, don't, don't, that's wrong. Um, 
yeah, that's a black person. That's fine. That's good. So let's not overthink it. Let's just like yeah. be just honest about it. For, yeah, for little kids. Then as kids get older, you know, by the time they're about six to 10 and they develop, you know, their cognitive skills, they're able to do some perspective taking, take the perspective mm -hmm. of the other. Then they start to make some inferences. You know, they look at inferred characteristics of people. They look around where they live, perhaps, and say, gee, you know, all the people who live in big houses are white. All the people who have money are white. Gee, all the black people I see are poor. Um, and so they begin now to make these statements. They're not really making judgments yet, but they're making statements. And so it's really important at that age to begin to introduce them to history um, so that they better understand how these things begin to happen. You know, what's the history of black people uh, in the United States, for example. Um, and they can begin to learn more. They can begin to learn about cultures and cultural differences. Um, and, and these things then become part of their experience as they start to see these things in the world around them. And, you know, media, mediated um, communication becomes very important. Well, it's, it's just there. I mean, it's so much part of our lives. And, you know, Marlene and I have talked about um, the media images of people of color since yeah. the pandemic started. So we have, for example, never seen as many experts on media, you know, on, yeah, on television, yeah. television, you know, news, you know, cable. Um, it's like, oh, isn't this amazing? How many scientific experts can talk about this virus? Who, you know, how many um, intellectuals who are, are brought on to talk about, you know, structural racism. And it's like, oh, okay, well, these individuals have been here, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and you're um, talking through black, right? You're saying oh, that black, the, yeah, the yeah, number right. has increased, right? So, and, and how good that is for kids so, to see. The images, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, okay, see, the, <laughs> yeah, there's a whole right. different view yeah, and, of and, and, who's and the, the expert. Right, and the converse of that is these are also the ages where your kids are watching a lot of Disney, for example or other mediated images where they're seeing not positive images yeah, of really. people of color. And so it becomes important. I mean, we don't believe that you take those things away from your children. Um, Disney is an experience for kids, um, but it is important to watch it with them and to talk about what they're seeing on the screen mm -hmm. so that they don't come away with these assumptions about who they're seeing on the screen and the inferences they're making about, oh, black people talk funny, the hyenas, um, or- Oh, um, yikes. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh. I, oh, just all, all of these things that it's so yeah. important oh, my gosh. Yeah. to talk to their kids about. Um, yeah. And that's, so that those are really important ages. And then of course, as kids get older, you know, at, at around 10 or so, they go beyond the inferences to actually understanding stereotypes and, really and, conceptualizing, and conceptualizing that because they are then at an, an age where they begin to think about how other people are seeing them. And so they are also making judgments about the people they see. Um, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And it becomes really important for parents then to begin to talk about stereotyping and unpack those stereotypes. With Even them. if your kids aren't listening, you think? Yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> don't want to talk to you. They're, they're hearing it. They're hearing yeah. it. Even if they don't participate in the conversation and you have something to say to them, it's gone yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and it's all about how you model as well, right? And how you yes. act, your own microaggressions that you, you know, all of those things that you hear about. And uh, I have to say, it is, it is exciting and it is, uh, I, like, it feels like we're, we are moving to a new place where we are, that th there is so much more inclusion. Um, do you, do you see that too? I mean, you just mentioned that on, uh, in terms of like TV news broadcasts, but are you, you know, are you seeing that in general? I feel but like I'm also, Sure. Yeah. And there's also an increase, which is, is been measured of the number of multi people who identify as multiracial and uh, interracial couples. Um, yes. And, you know, this will, <laughs> this will have a major influence on yeah. all of these issues. And it's important. It's a very important population trend, and yeah. it's being it, it's being monitored. I mean, not not in the sense of control, but I mean, we can see the differences. And you know, when in the U.S., when the the information finally comes out on this last census, you know, there's going to be another big jump in people who identify as multiracial by their background right. and who are you know, couples who are in, in multi-racial relationships. Yeah. So I think we're in a very fraught time right now. So okay. at the same time that all of those positive changes are happening, we're seeing, I think, in response to that in the U.S., a real growth in white supremacy and white supremacist thinking. And, or the, and the outing of white and supremacy. And the outing of it. You know, just like it's okay yeah. to be a white supremacist now. Yeah. And I think one of our great fears, and, and one of the reasons, again, why we believe people need to talk to each other, is that much of the white supremacist thinking that is like deeply ingrained in our culture, if we don't have conversations and we don't begin to talk, that will just remain there, unspoken. Um, or you want to talk a little bit about the Chauvin trial and the tropes that are being used? Oh, yeah, we were, we were talking. Yeah, let's about. talk about, uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, so the Chauvin oh, trial is what you just yeah. mentioned. So this is going on, and the prosecution is presenting their case. They're still presenting their, their case. And, of, of course, you know, Derek Chauvin, you know, deserves a, a robust defense, as anybody accused of something does. But what's happening is you can look at it from the prosecution standpoint and say, okay, they've got one after another witnesses who are speaking very clearly about this being done to him. And it was not right for various reasons, you know. Right. Um, various reasons. Yes. For various reasons. You've got, you know, bystanders, you know, who, who, are, who are like horrified watching this happen to him now medical people who are talking in very specific terms so you've got all that she was like case is going really case looks to be going really well mm -hmm. but then when you flip it the defense 
is now this is not a legal commentary this is a cultural commentary the defense is going to keep pounding and pounding and pounding uh, he was a drug addict he this happened because he had fentanyl in his system uh, he was a big strong black man mm -hmm. uh, these are the racial tropes yeah that even if you look at this trial and say we need justice for George Floyd. And this is going well. Those racial tropes are in the news every day because that's basically the argument of Derek Chauvin's defense attorneys. Right. Yeah, and, and the same thing is happening as he, you know, questions witnesses and attempts to make, you know, a young black woman seem to be emotionally out of control. Um, you know, and so it, it just, it goes through witness after witness, and it's a calling on these stereotypes, these racial tropes that are so deeply ingrained and that we don't question. And so you hear them and you just say, oh yeah, that's right. George Floyd was dangerous. And so the police were justified in what they did. Because that's what, um, that's what the case, that's what the case their case is their defense is about right so you know one of the things as white people that we have to do is that we have to learn about that and um, begin to understand how deeply ingrained these cultural assumptions are um, we need to learn about white privilege um, we need to develop empathy for black experience which we tend not to have we you know we live you know i i I don't know the statistics in Canada, but in the United States, neighborhoods are segregated and schools are segregated just because neighborhoods are segregated. And so, you know, whites tend to live in communities that are white. They are educated in schools that are white. They have friendship circles that are white. Um, we live our lives with other white people. And so we don't really understand or see the experiences that black people have. Um, and how important it is for us to talk to each other so that we learn what those experiences are. Um, yeah, and, and I will say Canada is no different. We, you know, there is, there is systematic racism, uh, especially when it comes to our, um, our native, our Aboriginal uh, yeah. community. Yeah. It is horrific. The, um, the history and the mistreatment of these beautiful people uh, and, you know, we, we are very multicultural here. And I grew up with, I hate to say it, but my parents were racist, you know, in, in, their, in, in a way where it was okay. And I'm using air quotes, okay. It was like, oh, the hunkies or yeah. the, you know, I mean, yeah. th that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I, that I, was I relate to that completely. I mean, my father was definitely racist. Yeah. Fine Christian man, you know, fine Christian man. Right, was, yeah. Well, was definitely raised. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. No, I was just say I grew up with parents who didn't do that, but their siblings did. <laughs> so, you know, I had aunts and uncles and cousins, you know, who used language that to me now is simply horrifying. It's unacceptable. And my sister and I, you know, we both rejected, you know, the way they would talk about things and, and, and it wasn't deep hate, but that's the systematic racism. It's, 
Yes. It's you saying, oh, it's just for fun. Oh, it's no big deal. Actually, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Exactly. Right. Right. For, for who? You know, so um, so I've tried to to make sure that, you know, I'm more aware and I I don't know what I don't know. So, you know, I'm trying my best to fumble through these uh, interviews with, you know, these topics that are are hard. And I think that's the whole point, right? We have to learn about why we have privilege as white women. Um, you know, um, then you hear the the Karens, you know, that is, oh, right. <laughs> you know, but anyway, I, I, I don't even want to go there. Um, so, so I, you know, here's the thing, I think as, as, we need to educate each other, right? As white people, we need to listen to what the black community has been telling us all along and we need to respect yes. it. And I love that you just said, have empathy for black experiences. Uh, I think that's huge. Be willing to learn and be open to a difference. Um, and and boy, does it ever scare me the 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 rays of the white supremacist right now and that it's somewhat okay as, as my mom is german and um so grew up in germany and i just uh and that is devastating to hear that it's coming back because that is just so horrible uh and oh Yes. So we need you and your book more than ever. And I, uh, I, I just, we have a gift for everybody, which is, uh, which is a full chapter of the book. So in, in what you're giving everybody, you, you talk about some ways to talk to your kids and, uh, and some different ways to, to really bring this subject to the forefront because it's important. And like you said, even if in your day-to-day -day experience, you don't experience the, the, uh, again, see, I'm stumbling over my words, but uh, situations that are racist where you either witness somebody, um, you know, being affected by racism or you, you do something yourself, um, we've, we've just got to open it up. We've got to talk about it. And we, you know, right. regardless, our kids are going to have those experiences away from us. So we, we should be talking about it at home. Yes. Oh, Robin, I just yes. wanted to mention that the chapter that we provided for, for you um, mm. uh, looks like a chapter from our book. It's actually a chapter from our previous book oh, um, was, oh, I'm sorry. on the interracial adoption option. Okay. Um, we, can't, we, we couldn't give you a chapter from our current book because it's not officially published, published until yet. the 13th of April. So by contract, we are not allowed to to give you my mistake. Copy. I'm sorry about that. Thank you. No, for no, no, that's all right. But I mean, many of the issues in that chapter we gave you from the interracial adoption book are ones that we've actually talked about today. Right. Um, and and more directly focused on on communication, you know, with your children than right. some, some of the content. In, Okay, that's great. Yeah, and the book is the interracial adoption option, building a family across right, race, right. and so then that's, the, that's, yeah, yeah, and that's then, the previous book, right. and then this book is let's talk race, a guide for white people. Correct. Correct. <laughs> I love yeah. that it's just like it's pretty pretty blunt, and just get to <laughs> it's a guide for you white people. So. <laughs> I have so enjoyed talking to you. Um, thank you for the work that you're doing. And I, I still feel like we've only scratched the surface, which I know yes, we have, yes, right? Yes, so, we have. But yeah. it was delightful.
helpful. Um, yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. Great back and forth yeah. conversation. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for um, for the work that you're doing and for helping us to uh, helping those of us that don't know better but want to do better. And thank you thank for you. bringing this, this to a, a broader yes. audience. Yes, I appreciate oh, it. You're so welcome. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might also need to hear this message. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you like my work, I'd be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. For those of you who like my content and want more, visit me at yellingcurebook.com to get your copy of my book and to find other resources to help you. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace and connection.